Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Everyone, welcome to SACPA. It's time to get started. My name's Dwayne Pendergast, and I am your moderator today. I'll start with the usual procedure. We're recording. Please turn off your cell phones, and uh, I remind you to check that payment basket to make sure you've paid your $11 for lunch. And uh, I will repeat that SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit association. We rely on membership fees and session attendees to continue our work. We get a little cut from the lunch, I believe. Memberships are available from Lisa, who's now managing the sound system here at the front of the room. We thank the University of Lethbridge and the Lethbridge Herald for their support and notice distribution. Uh, Country Kitchen Catering for hosting lunch so ably. Shaw TV for broadcasting our sessions. Uh, CKXU for live radio and other media for covering our events. Uh, for newcomers, I know we start with a 25 to 30 minute presentation, then we have lunch followed by a 30 minute question period starting about 1 p.m. Now I'd like to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Kenneth Green. The Lethbridge Herald published a guest editorial by Dr. Green in January commenting on the National Energy Board approval of the Northern Gateway Pipeline proposal. He pointed out then that project completion is still fraught with uncertainty, as are other proposals to get Alberta oil to market. He kindly agreed to come to SACPA to elaborate about his concerns with Canada's energy infrastructure. Dr. Green is with the Fraser Institute in Calgary as the Senior Director of Natural Resources Studies. He's a biologist and an environmental scientist, holds a Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees in general and molecular biology, and he has a Doctor of Environmental Science and Engineering degree from the University of California. His talk is titled, Energy Superpower or Pitiful Pauper? That is the question. Welcome to SACPA, Ken. Podium's yours. Well, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for joining us here today. I'd like to thank SACPA for inviting me and thank uh, Dwayne for, uh, for showing me around uh, Lethbridge yesterday. I, I haven't been here before and so it was a wonderful opportunity to, to, uh, to see the town and uh, all of its interesting architectural, uh, architectural and cultural features. I thought it was great. Um, I really have the university buildings were quite, quite interesting. Um, so uh, as Dwayne said, um, I uh, am with the Fraser Institute. I direct the uh, Center for Studies in Natural Resource Policy. Um, what that means, um, and I'll get to that in a minute. I should say beforehand that, that everything I say here is, uh, is my own personal opinion. Um, the Institute itself doesn't have official positions. Very few think tanks actually do. 
they hire people like myself who have opinions and we share them uh, freely. But uh, what I say is my opinion and shouldn't be assumed to represent anybody else uh, other than myself. Um, so, uh, Fraser Institute, a few words about that. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan policy research organization. The headquarters is in Vancouver. Uh, I am located here in, uh, in Calgary, uh, in Alberta, up in Calgary. Um, I've been back with the Institute for about a year and a half now, having been uh, with the Institute before in the early 2000s, then uh, down in Washington, D.C., working for a think tank there, the American Enterprise Institute, and now back uh, to uh, Canada to work uh, in Alberta on energy and natural resources. Um, natural resources covers energy, it covers mining, of course, it covers uh, food production, it covers agriculture, it covers all sorts of things. We primarily focus on energy and mining, uh, and today, of course, is going to primarily be a focus on uh, the issue of energy. So, uh, again, I'm not sure how, how much do you, how many of you know about the Fraser Institute? Oh, good, knowledgeable audience. But so maybe I'll I'll, I'll um, challenge a few of your perceptions. So, uh, the, the Fraser Institute is um, uh, actually a very straightforward has a very straightforward vision. We want Canadians um, to have all of the things that they say that they want. Uh, a strong economy with great opportunities for mobility and for career development, uh, high-quality health care, top-quality schools, opportunities for a fulfilling retirement, uh, time and, and uh, money in order to enjoy leisure time, sports, travel, uh, and all of the things Canadians uh, say they want um, out of their life. And... Um, we tell people that, and they say, and I, and I usually say, it's, I know it's a radical, ra radical vision, isn't it? Um, what differentiates us uh, from others who claim uh, to have the same vision, because everybody says we all want everybody to have good things, is that we uh, don't simply say we want people to have those things. We looked into uh, the data and the evidence from historical experiences from uh, other countries that have, that have tried to, to do the same things, from um, the, the numerical data that's available from government entities uh, primarily and from research organizations, from universities. Uh, and what we have come to understand and what differentiate us, differentiates us to a large extent is that uh, we have concluded that markets and trade uh, amongst people and between people uh, are the wellsprings of that prosperity, and it's from those engines uh, that all those good things flow. Um, and we don't just look. Uh, the Institute has an unofficial motto, which is, if it matters, uh, measure it. Uh, and so we do that. Um, we measure, uh, for example, we measure waiting times in healthcare so that people can understand um, the consequences of how the healthcare system is run uh, in their personal lives. We study the performance of schools. We've measured the performance of schools so parents can look around and say where the best performing schools are uh, to send their children. We've measured the time it takes for new drugs to come to market so that people can understand uh, how long they'll be waiting for a drug that might be available in other countries because of Canada's regulatory system. Uh, we measure uh, how the policy in various places affects companies' willingness to invest uh, and build new industries to invest in mining, for example, around the world. Uh, we measure um, uh, policy around the world uh, in over 100 jurisdictions to, to uh, estimate whether or not they, the policies are, are good for investing or hospitable for investing in mining, which benefits 
uh, both um, developed and developing societies. And the same is true uh, for energy. We measure policies around the world to determine whether or not governments are adequately protecting the environment while still getting the benefits of energy development uh, for their citizens. So, um, and, and I wanted to, before I get to the actual comments about oil, which we're going to talk about today, I want to say, you know, there's a perception that, that the Fraser Institute is um, anti-regulatory, that we're anti-government, we're anti-regulation, and that we're, uh, um, but, but that really is not the case. We, we understand that it requires uh, regulation and government to establish the basic rules of operation in society to allow markets uh, to function. Uh, governments are necessary, of course, for defense, they're necessary for the court system, they're necessary for justice and securing property rights and all those things that we tend to take for granted, uh, maintaining a stable currency and the like. And so uh, we, we, are, uh, we are not anti-government particularly. We, um, we have, believe there are certain places where its government is, is most beneficial, others where it may be less so uh, from our studies, but um, uh, that's a different story. So um, one of the things we do know is that bad regulation uh, can seriously degrade people's access to those things uh, they say they want, as I discussed earlier. Um, and that activity is often hard to see and it's obscure. So uh, what I do is um, I study public policies related to energy uh, at the Fraser Institute, and that could be direct in terms of uh, I might do a study that looks at the cost to the average household of implementing a new set of environmental regulations that affect energy production uh, or making a mandate that says a certain percentage of energy has to come from wind or solar power. Uh, we would do. We would look at studies that say, okay, that's a choice we can make as a society. But what are the consequences to you, as a household? What's coming to your power bill? What's going to somebody else's power bill? What's going to their tax bill? Things like that. We might look at the provincial level in terms of saying, Ontario, for example, put in a green energy act. They took very aggressive steps to phase out coal and to put in wind and solar power, primarily wind. Um, what are the consequences to Ontario? We did a study with one of our senior fellows last year, Ross McKittrick, who showed that Ontario, uh, while its electricity prices had been in the middle of the North American range, uh, it shot up toward near the top of the North American range with increases of 50% coming in within the next five years. Um, and that if they had simply gone with a lesser, without the wind, but had upgraded their, their coal power plants, they could have had all the environmental benefits for one-tenth of the money, uh, taxpayer money that was spent. Right? So we look at things at the provincial level, uh, and we look at things at the national level, and I'll talk about the, the possible ramifications of uh, Keystone and other international issues uh, later. That's to make sure I keep your attention through, through uh, uh, lunch here. But um, uh, suffice to say that, that rules and regulations affect Canada's ability to export its oil to market, and that costs Canadians money because right now, um, Canadian oil all goes, export, exported oil virtually all goes to the United States. Uh, it's locked in a bottleneck in the United States Midwest, which means it's not commanding the full world price of oil, uh, and that means that Canadian society is losing uh, somewhere around $20 billion a year, uh, if not more than that, um, because we're getting, uh, others are applying a discount to the oil that Canada uh, exports because of the bottlenecks. Um, I'll skip my background since Dwayne, uh, Dwayne uh, mentioned it, but just to say I'm not an economist. Uh, it's another misconception is that we're all economists. Uh, I'm not an economist. I'm a, a biologist and environmental science uh, scientist by training. And so we can talk about um, uh, 
uh, anything you're interested in with regard to the environment in the question and answer period. If you want to talk about climate change, we can. If you want to talk about uh, other environmental issues, the air pollution trends and water pollution trends and things like that in Canada, we'd be more than happy uh, to talk about that. So uh, why are we interested? Why am I interested uh, in energy? Well, the, the one thing we know is that Canada uh, always has been, uh, is now, and probably will be for con a considerable amount of time, a country whose economy is built on natural resource development. Transforming uh, energy into products, first of all, developing energy out of the ground and minerals and metals uh, and foods, transforming them into finished products, uh, consuming them and, to a very large extent, exporting them is what built Canada. Uh, it's what sustains Canada today, and I'm going to give some numbers on that in a minute. Uh, and uh, contrary to some people's belief, it's going to sustain Canada uh, for decades to come because alternatives, um, while promised, uh, are not fulfilling the promises that are being made. Um, and traditionally, Canada Canadian policies have been in, in harmony with that. Everybody has accepted that this is one of the ways that a very large country with a small population uh, makes its economy go. It produces a lot of things and it exports them onto hungry world markets where people can consume them and better themselves while Canadians also uh, prosper. But that is not necessarily um, going to continue. There are a lot of forces that are pushing Canadian policy away from being hospitable to that kind of activity uh, and as a replacement they're proposing things that really have not worked uh, wherever they've been tried around the world. And so we'll talk about that a bit. So a few facts to give you some context. Um, energy uh, is a major source of prosperity in Canada. Um, we'll, we'll do a little test. Uh, in terms of the, the total gross domestic product of Canada, that's all the wealth generated by Canada in the course of a year. Um, how many of you think the energy sector, that's all energy, natural gas, oil, coal, uh, exported electricity, hydro, etc. How many of you think it's responsible for 2% uh, of the Canadian economy? Three? Four? Five? It's 10. Fully 10% of the Canadian economy uh, comes from Canada's energy sector. Uh, just to give you a, an, an idea of what that means, in an average year, if the economy grows at 2%, uh, that's considered a good year. 2.5% is a good year. 3% is a very good year. 0% uh, is a recession. And anything minus, minus that is a deep recession, uh, and then you work your way toward depression, right? So if you envision taking 10% off the top of Canada's economy, what you realize is uh, you rapidly don't have an economy. You have a permanent stagnation. Uh, and that's a very bad place to be as a, a developed country that depends on uh, high technology and uh, access to energy and, and goods and services uh, that we depend on. Um, the energy sector, um, excluding the people who actually just deliver and pump the gas and things like that, uh, employs 200 and, uh, over 260,000 people uh, in Canada, which is 2% uh, of the employment in the entire country. And when you throw in the other the, the service stations, there's another 92,000 that go on top of that. And the oil and gas production contributes in royalties to governments. This is what funds health care, what funds schools, it's what funds infrastructure. Uh, $17 to $20 billion every year uh, to government coffers to pay for social services. 
Um, and as exports in 2010, which is when the data is available, energy exports were 22%. That's a fifth, more than a fifth, of all Canadian exports. The same is true for mining, the mining sector, which is very big in Canada. It's about 4% of the total GDP. So just mining and energy alone are almost 15% of, of all economic product in Canada. Uh, it employs um, uh, over 300,000 workers as of 2012, including over 10,000 uh, Aboriginal employees in 2012. And it's another 22% of Canada's exports. So between the two areas, you've got almost 45% of Canada's total exports are in those two areas. Um, and it's not simply the industries that benefit. Uh, if it were, that we would be less concerned. But it's Canadians as a whole that benefit. The Canadian Pension Plan, uh, how many of you are receiving CPP? I'm guessing a couple. <laughs> Two or three. Um, the Canadian Pension Plan uh, holds over almost $3 billion worth of shares in companies uh, that are up in Alberta's oil patch that are heavy in, uh, in oil sands. So the revenues going into CPP that are coming into you uh, in your checks uh, are coming partly because of the oil sands. Um, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan alone, and this is only Ontario, uh, holds a billion dollars of those same stocks that are heavy in, in oil sands, which is amusing when you think of, of Ontario's lack of interest in helping Alberta move its product, uh, its product to market, um, uh, and the, the, yet they're disproportionate say in that issue. And the revenues from the oil sands, um, uh, 25 to 40 percent of the entire profit goes to uh, royalties to governments from oil sand projects that have gone through their economic life. Uh, but as I said, there's, there, are, there are bottlenecks in the system that are costing us equal amounts of money. We're losing $17 billion a year or more because of the bottlenecks into the United States. And as a result of that, for example, the discount in 2013 cost Alberta um, almost $2.5 billion that the um, province had planned on, on earning in royalties and revenues that it didn't collect and therefore had to change its budget priorities to manage to, to uh, reduce uh, its losses. Same is true in Saskatchewan, where they lost significant money off of their 2012 projections because of the discounted price. And so uh, Canada's quandary today is that we have huge uh, energy resources um, with, that are projected to more than double uh, by 2030, the production of which is expected to more than double uh, by the year 2030. And, and um, as hard as it is to believe, that's only 15 years away now. Um, but um, there are huge barriers to that process that everybody's counting on to produce the prosperity Canada needs. And uh, those barriers are physical, um, they are social, they are political, uh, and they are uh, international. So uh, they, take the, they, they, they take the context of opposition from uh, regulators, opposition from uh, special interest groups, uh, the physical challenges simply of, of overcoming uh, natural uh, obstacles and, and operating in a safe environmental way, uh, challenges from outside, uh, and so on. Um, and to give you uh, an, an idea of one of the challenges we face um, uh, is the change that's gone on uh, in the United States. Uh, how many of you have heard about the, the, the shale gas boom that's happening in the United States? 
Good. Um, how many of you know that, that only seven years ago, the United States was planning to build natural gas import terminals because they thought they were running out of natural gas? Seven years, uh, and they're turning those import terminals into export terminals uh, and planning to be major energy exporters in the world market uh, by the year, again, by around 2030. And in fact, with oil and gas that the United States is producing, their demand for imports is dropping uh, like a rock. It's dropping precipitously, uh, and that will include Canadian imports. And so the expectation Canada has had for uh, oh, well over a decade, if not two, that the United States would be an infinite reservoir to take Canadian exports uh, and pay the world price um, that expectation is shattering on a new reality, which is that the shale and oil boom in the United States will make the United States a competitor of Canada's in world oil markets in the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, and that means that Canada's oil will have to go elsewhere if we're going to get any kind of revenues or returns off of that natural resource that we have so much of. And that the world, by the way, is very hungry for. One of the things I talk to students a lot, and they say, well, you know, why should we care about energy? And you say, well, you pay for it every month, or your parents pay for it every month, and the power bills and everything, and they say, well, we can afford it. Uh, and you say, well, uh, okay. It's, it's also adds to your tuition, and your parents pay that, and they say, well, we can afford that too. And all right, well, two billion people around the world don't have so much as a light bulb, uh, and the women uh, are essentially engaged in manual labor from the time they're born till they die with no opportunity for education. Uh, they die 20 to 30 years prematurely of lung cancer because they're cooking over uh, dung fires in unventilated houses, and so are their children who go blind in overwhelming numbers. Can you afford that too? Uh, the answer is most people at that point say, well, no, that, that's pretty much not affordable. And, and that means those people have to have access to energy, and Canada uh, has to play a part along with the rest of the world, uh, in producing it. So that's one of the challenges, uh, is the U.S. changing the U.S. Another challenge uh, is internal and political, and that is, as Duane pointed out, I wrote about this, the opposition to energy development uh, that has come about uh, with uh, environmental and aboriginal groups. Although, one interesting thing, there's a fracture coming in developing within environmental groups because um, some environmental groups are realizing that uh, the, one of the subjects I think is touchy around here, hydraulic fracturing. Uh, they're actually getting behind it as a solution to environmental problems, uh, and they're being opposed by people who are completely dead set against it for um, what the environmentalists are saying are non-scientific grounds. So there's a, there's a real fight going on in there. Um, and then there's, the, there, the, there's actually, uh, regrettably now, physical confrontations of people engaging in uh, physical blockade uh, of roadways, railways, pipelines, uh, chaining themselves to, to, to uh, institutions, damaging uh, equipment and vehicles, things like that, um, that are throwing up obstacles to uh, the development of energy infrastructure necessary for Canada's, uh, Canada's energy sector. And one of the things I wrote about was regarding the Northern Gateway, and I'll, I'll add that in here. And can you give me a signal when we get to, say, five minutes? I will. Yes. Good. Um, with regard to Northern Gateway, um, as I wrote, uh, you know, it's re perfectly reasonable for people to object to any infrastructure project. 
and to go to their regulators and go to their government and say, we, we want you to look at this, we want you to make sure it's following law, that it's safe, and so forth. Um, but at a certain point, one has to assume that if you go through all the legal hoops and hurdles that are the governments, elected governments have, have put up, and you've gone through all the regulatory hurdles, at the end of the day, you'll, allowed to be, you'll be allowed to do business. Right? When you go to add an extension on your house, that's your expectation. That as long as you follow the rules, right, you'll be allowed to develop the house. If somebody told you that, well, you can call a contractor, you can pay for the contractor to give you plans, you can make your designs, you can go to all the boards, you can pay all the fees to have an extension on your house, you can get estimates from a whole bunch of people to build the thing, you can, get, uh, you can pay all the licensing rules, but at the end of the day, some group might come out and just say, we don't, want, we don't like the look of your extension, you can't build it. How many would ever plan an extension, right? You, it's, it, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't put the money up if you thought that simple disapproval after you followed all the laws could stop you from going ahead with a perfectly legal activity. And that's where we've reached in Canada, unfortunately, with things like Northern Gateway, which has gone through an unbelievably extensive regulatory process uh, with consultation with thousands of people uh, and comments from, from virtually every group uh, known under the sun uh, being considered, and at the end of the day, uh, even with 200 and some conditions from the National Energy Board uh, that will have to be met, the, some of the environmental activists and the Aboriginal First Nations activists are saying, uh, no, we, we don't care. We don't really care about what the elected governments have said. Our answer is simply no. Uh, and so we're at five? Wow. Okay. Well, then I will whip ahead. Um, a third challenge we have here in Canada is... Um, Increasingly, tinkering from outside. We have international groups that have vilified Canada for uh, the, the oil sands for their contribution to global warming. Uh, again, convenience is, is, a, um, uh, is the source of this. It was all in good, in good fun while Russia was giving uh, energy to Europe at low rates and not asking for much in return. But now that Russia has, uh, is starting to play games with energy, the Europeans are saying, hmm, that Canadian stuff looks actually better all the time and it may be nice if you moved ahead with your with your infrastructure. So there's outside agencies that are, that are getting into this. The United Nations recently weighed in. Uh, the United Nations Educational, uh, UNESCO, Educational and Science uh, Organization, uh, said that, uh, has weighed in on pipelines and said, you know, this one should be developed and that one shouldn't. Um, and the United Nations as a whole is weighing in now on these issues as well. Uh, let's talk about pipelines in the last couple minutes we have. Um, why are pipelines the logical key to Canada's oil challenge, well, we've been building them since 1853. There's over 800,000 kilometers of pipelines when you count all the gathering, feeding, transmission, and distribution pipelines in Canada. The U.S. has over 4 million uh, kilometers of pipelines. Um, and in the think tank business, we call that uh, a lot of experience. And so, and, and that experience generally shows that pipelines are... Uh, they are, of course, not accident-free. Nothing is. Uh, but they are, by and, by and large, the safest way to transport very large quantities of oil. And, of course, because um, they, they, there's profit potential at the end of the, of the pipe, as it were, it doesn't require government funds. It doesn't require a government investment. There's plenty of private capital waiting to build them. All that's required is approval. Um, pipelines are really clever. Uh, I mean, people hate them. Everybody says, I hate pipelines. But pipelines are remarkably clever when you think about it because they move the product you want without moving a vehicle, right? No packaging, no vehicle. They move the product, but the actual device that moves it stays still. They don't require you to deadhead an empty vehicle back after you drop it off. Um, 
because as a truck or a train would, you have to fill the car in both ways to make it profitable. Uh, they're energy efficient because they're sealed. Uh, they're routed away from vulnerable areas and populations. Generally, pipelines are not right through the hearts of cities. Um, you can control them 24-7 because as soon as something leaks, there's a drop in pressure. You know about it. it. It lights up alarms at your headquarters, and you can dispatch a crew to fix it, whereas if a truck or a train crashes, it can be hours to days before you know what happened. Um, there are very few moving parts in terms of things that can go wrong. They don't interact with other forms of transport. Um, when was the last time anybody heard of a pipeline running into another pipeline? <laughs> and blowing up. No, that, that doesn't happen, in fact. Um, I don't think a pipeline has ever run into another pipeline. Um, and there's less humans per volume moved, which means less room for, for human error. Compare that to trains and trucks. Um, and I can't go through all of this because we're running out of time. We can do it in Q&A. But, of course, the trucks move their, themselves, their own mass, as much as they do product. Uh, there's decentralized in their control systems. They intentionally go through population centers because that's where you want to drop off your goods and services. That's how trains and truck lines were planned because that's where you want to bring stuff. Um, there's more potential for human error. They uh, interact, do interact with other modes of transport. Trucks crash into trucks and trains crash into trains and trucks. And uh, there's more opportunity for accidents there. And they use more energy for a unit of, of transport, which means they're less efficient and more polluting. Um, we have lots more we can talk about uh, in terms of the pipelines, uh, safety of pipelines versus trains versus trucks. I'll give you the really biggest picture in my last minute. Uh, pipelines uh, are w vastly safer uh, than trucks and, and then trains, which are safer than trucks, both in terms of the number of oil spills, the amount spilled, and people harmed uh, in the doing, both workers and civilians affected by the passage of oil. Uh, that's not only in Canada, but in the United States, it's also in Canada. And it was recently upheld by the most evaluation, recent evaluation of the Keystone XL pipeline, where the U.S. State Department itself uh, pointed out that uh, going with trucks and trains instead of Keystone would involve 49 extra injuries and six people killed every year uh, compared to what would happen with uh, mm -hmm. Keystone XL, which would kill, the, the estimate is one person might die every year as a result of Keystone XL. So it's more dangerous uh, for the environment, more dangerous for people. Uh, and I will conclude with that, which is to say we have huge promise for energy potential in Canada to generate more prosperity for our society. Uh, the challenge is going to be whether we have the nerve to see it through and to do what needs to be done to develop those resources, or are we going to let voices, uh, often fear-driven voices, keep us from developing that potential? With that, I'll turn it back to Dwayne. Thank you. Thank you for your attention.